Hey, welcome to Litza Lens, the adaptation podcast. We have a doozy of an episode for you here today. Neil Clark is the editor of Clark's World, a Hugo and Nebula award-winning science fiction and fantasy magazine first published in October 2006. Each issue of Clark's World contains interviews, articles, and works of original fiction, and past contributors have included such famous names as N.K. Jemison and Jeff Vandermeer. Maybe you've heard of them. And now, our interview with Mr. Neil Clark. So to start things off, can you give us a a description of your magazine, Clark's World, uh, and how did the magazine come to be? Okay, well, Clark's World is a science fiction and fantasy magazine that leans more science fiction than fantasy. It's been around for 13 years um, as an online magazine. Uh, There's also a podcast edition of all the stories and uh, ebook editions and print edition uh, as well. Those all came along later. The magazine started uh, because it seemed like a good idea at the time, uh, like a lot of these projects do. Uh, I was having a conversation at a science fiction convention about the state of short fiction. Um, I was a bookseller at the time. And uh, we got the idea in our head that, hey, maybe we should launch a magazine. At the time, um, are you familiar with Sci Fiction, uh, Sci-Fi Channel's magazine? It was the sort of the, the, the big online magazine that everybody knew for a while. And it shut down, I think, in 2005 or six and left a huge hole in the market. Uh, so, you know, that was sort of what instigated the conversation. And we saw a big hole that needed to be filled. So we thought, oh, why not give it a shot? Awesome. So we, as I mentioned before, we just had a conversation with Trevor uh, from Analog. And he took over the editor's role at his pub in 2012, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And you obviously started your own magazine. Um, he mentioned, you know, he was able to build something new while also playing within some of the more established sandbox, you know, sandbox of, of the pub. I am, I want to hear from you to say like, you know, you created your own thing. How do you go from infinite possibilities into whittling it down in, into a book? <laughs> Oh, it, it took some time. I mean, we, from the time we decided to do it to the, to the first issue, I think that was July and we launched the first issue in October. So we ramped up very quickly. But um, I would say that it probably took us about two years to really find our stride. Like, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the stories in the first two years. It's, it's that I think we've just started firing on, on all cylinders by that point. And we sort of found our rhythm. And uh, so, you know, it, it, Took a little bit of time, but um, I think one of the things coming in, I had already been reading short fiction for probably 30 years at that point. Uh, so I already had what I liked and what I didn't like. And, you know, that that's a lot of what being an editor is, is knowing um, uh, how to, to craft, I guess, the, the collection of stories around, around uh, your particular taste um so they you know there's a, a lot of a lot of reading that has to go into that evaluation process to get the you know six or eight stories that we'll do in an issue uh, but the uh um i think starting from scratch in a way was good for me like it, 
Trevor had to follow in, in Stanley Schmidt's footsteps. And Stanley had been an editor there for a very long time. So the readers had certain expectations. And it's difficult coming in um, uh, sometimes to, to uh, fill the shoes of somebody who was you know, a legend in the field. Uh, and in my case, I had no one that I had to follow. Um, and I could make mistakes and people would be like, okay. <laughs> You know, it was a lot more forgiving. Plus, uh, when we launched on, in 2006, people didn't really respect online magazines all that much. So um, there wasn't as much pressure. Uh, uh, so I think it, it worked out better for me. I don't think I could have done what Trevor did and, 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 and uh, survived. You mentioned taste. Uh, what is your, what, so back in 2006, what would you say your taste was, you know, you've been a reader for so many years and today has that taste changed? Uh, I tend to describe what I'm looking for as a moving target. Um, it's basically the best I've been able to come up with is that what I'm really looking for is very much, uh, influenced by everything I've read before. Um, I'm somebody who gets bored easily. So I want to keep moving forward. And that's not to say forward is not necessarily better. It's just different. Um, so I tend to uh, prefer things that are a little different. So one of the ways uh, I did some analysis uh, a while back trying to figure out exactly how to define that. And the best I was able to come up with was I was looking for work that perhaps the author had a different experience with science fiction than I did, maybe. They might have been influenced by different readers or, or different authors. They might have um, had a different cultural background. They might have had so something that gave them a unique twist on, at least unique to me. I mean, it's common to them, but unique to me, um, a way of looking at, at, the, at the story. So, you know, there's a limited number of types of science fiction stories. Uh, so you're not always going to find the, the most original, but what you're looking for is somebody who does something enough that's different enough uh, uh, to make it uh, stand the test. I think my acid test for a story is, do I remember it the next day? Um, we, <laughs> and that it sounds harsh, but we get 1,100 submissions a month. Yeah. So, you know, when they all start to blur together. Uh, and if it's, it's strong enough to stand out, uh, and you remember it the next day, there's something there. Um, and, you know, you, assuming you're, it's still in your head for the right reasons. <laughs> right, right. No, I laugh because I'm the same way. Uh, I have a hard time remembering the stories that I read even, you know, a couple of years ago. Um, so I think that that says a lot about stories that'll, you know, kind of stay with you. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we noticed and stayed with us for a few days, at least, was um, your cover art for a lot of your magazines is, is pretty extraordinary. Thank you. Um, so I wanted to ask you about that and, you know, how were you able to, you know, get that going? How were you able to maybe reach out to certain artists, um, kind of develop that aesthetic from your magazine? Um, okay, so I didn't really know what I was doing when I first started <laughs> with, the, with the art. So I just sort of, I just emailed people and said, would you be interested here? Here's how much we can pay you. This is what we want to do. Um, and we were very fortunate from the start to to get a number of artists who, who who were really talented but might not be as well known 
like some of the artists we've worked with have now gone on to to be quite well established. Um, Julie Dillon, for example, has won multiple Hugo Awards for for uh, best artist, uh, and is doing book covers for Tor and several other major publishers, and um, and she's amazing. Um, but when we we started working with her before all of that, um, so you know, there's there's that aspect of of getting to um, give a platform to artists, just like we do with the authors. Uh, and it's, it's worked out rather nicely for us over the years. Um, I used to, I think we used to get about a, a 30, 40% decline rate from artists. And I haven't, I think it's probably less than 10% now. Um, but then I don't go, um, I don't seek out the, the, uh, the extremely established artists in the field and, and because they're quite obviously going to be outside of our price range for a small magazine. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really happy with the, the people we've gotten to work with and, and uh, a lot of our readers respond very positive, positively to the store, to the arts. <laughs> wow. I'm having trouble speaking. <laughs> a lot of our readers respond very positively to the art that we've been uh, selecting over the years. And I've been, um, fortunate enough to be recognized um, uh, by ASFA, the Association of Science Fiction Artists, uh, with uh, three Chesley Awards for my art direction. That's well, congratulations. Which completely surprised me. <laughs> That's amazing. That's quite the accomplishment. Um, mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it's clear with the, the artwork. If, if anyone who's listening to this podcast, just go to the Clark, Clark's World website and you'll instantly see that um, the artwork clearly stands out. And it's very unique. And so I wanted to ask a follow-up to that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, how important is cover art and artwork in general to the science fiction genre um, as it relates to the literary work? Well, my approach to the cover art on the magazine is that it's a standalone story in itself. Um, so a lot of magazines will attempt, or, and definitely all the books, what you see on the cover is reflected in the story or the, the, the novel itself. But that's not the case with, with, uh, with our covers. We pick art that we really like and that's its own story. Um, cover art is sort of a requirement uh, for, for a physical object and an ebook. Uh, you know, the, you, you see it on a website, you need something visually appealing to attract people's attention. They say don't dredge a book by its cover, but everyone does. You know, it, it's, it's just a given. So I think that um, in working with the, the books that I've done in addition to the magazine, um, we're very, we pay a lot of attention to, to, the, uh, to the selection of, of art and, and uh, not just the art itself, the design. Uh, so the font, the, the, the placement of words, you'll see the c cover for Clark's World is very minimal. We put the, the author names at the bottom and, and our name at the top and nothing in the middle but the art. We want the art to be featured. So th uh, that's sort of my philosophy on that. And for listeners uh, who can't see this, uh, Neil is, is sitting in front of two giant pieces of his cover art. Another <laughs> great. Yeah. Um, so functionally, when you're building a magazine, you mentioned before that reading something 
you know you're going to publish is something that sticks with you overnight or for a couple of days. I am wanting to know, is there any craft part of this that makes a submission stand out or anything with writers dealing with certain ideas or what makes something pop? Well, they, they have to be well written to, to start with. But I mean, we're not we're not looking for perfect stories either. I mean, we're, we're looking for a story we think that one we want to be associated with and and uh, we think is is um, ready or will be ready when we're done. Uh, so we, you know, we're having a good working relationship with the author um, is a part of that process. So a story that that sort of pops for me tends to be ones that make me think or feel um, because quite often you're reading these stories and it's like nothing. You, you, it's like you don't connect with the character. It, it doesn't work for you. And I think that's true of every reader. It's not an editor trade. You know, anybody who reads a novel or a short story, if they don't connect uh, some way with what's going on, it, it doesn't impress. Uh, so that tends to be uh, the, 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 the core aspect. So, it, it, you know, well-written um, uh, and the thinking or feeling component, sometimes both. Uh, have you seen um, differences in submissions from 2006 when you first started um, to today in terms of the ideas that the writers are wrestling with, whether that's, you know, philosophical ideas or maybe technological ideas uh, or maybe even just character development ideas? Well, I think the, the the quality of the writing has been pretty solid. I think what we're, one of the things we're seeing more from 2006 to now is the quantity of stories we're seeing. There's more people writing short fiction by a significant factor than there were in, in 2006. Some of that is the, the, uh, the growth in popularity of short fiction. Some of that is just the... Um, uh, uh, digital submission process made it a lot easier um, because back in 2006 it was unusual to to have digital submissions. So you all, that alone just opened up the world because you have uh, somebody who was say in Australia would write send a story and they'd have to mail it in an envelope and they'd have to pay money. So that money went away. Uh, so there were lots of different things that sort of uh, opened up the door to to increasing volume. Um, thematically, things are always changing. You know, vampires will be the rage one year and zombies unfortunately won't stop. Um, and, but you, you have, um, I think recently, more recently, you have a lot of climate stories, um, which you didn't really see as much of in 2006. Um, right now, there's a lot of pandemic stories. I'm not sure why that's happening. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's, it, it's just, um, sort of a window into what the community is going through in some cases. So, you know, you'll see around, uh, you know, a few years ago, uh, you know, after that, after the presidential election, there was a, a drop off of, I would say, you know, a significant percentage, uh, a drop in submissions for a few months while people recovered um, uh, from, from all that. So there, there's, you know, every little thing sort of plays, plays into it. And, you know, I, I talk with, we occasionally, um, we'll have uh, some slush readers involved in the process. Uh, and these are people who help us um, first read some of the stories. Uh, I always first read uh, as well. 
but uh, that's one of the things that they're in. They're all people who are authors and it gives them a view of, you know, the trends in the field and the common mistakes in the field and the common mistakes stay pretty common most of the time. There's no one's inventing new mistakes, but uh, the, you see the different trends, you know, when a wizard anthology just closed because we just got slammed by, you know, you know, 30 to to a hundred wizard stories in the course of a day. Um, you know, so it, it gives you some insight into, to what's happening and what you might not want to be writing and sending out right then even. Yeah. So when we talk about the common tropes, themes, or, you know, content, um, you mentioned before that you were looking for something that's different enough and that's how you knew it was ready to publish. So how do you, can you break that down for me? What makes something good enough? You know? Um, well, that, that's part of the, you know, surprise me uh, aspect of it. Uh, you know, it's gotten to the point where most of the time after reading the first page or two of a story, I know where it's going to go and how it's going to end. And if you can successfully surprise me, good for you. I mean, that, that's, I am so impressed and so happy <laughs> because I'm so used to not being surprised. Um, so that, that, that's, that's, uh, that's part of it. Um, let's see. I, I'm, I'm blanking on, on what, what other pieces to, to put into that, but it, it's, uh, yeah, it's it's sort of an all of the above of of the things that I sort of uh, that I covered already, um, but with with um... hmm. <laughs> okay, uh, I I wrote things down just in case I forgot, and this was not one of the things I wrote down. <laughs> all right, so the the um, what may, makes it stand out. Um, I don't know. Uh, it, it's, uh, so you, there's, yeah, you, you, it, um, you know, I'm sure when you start, begin, you start reading a story, you're, you're like, okay, this is where this is kind of going. You kind of mm -hmm. get the feel of, of the characters and what's happening in the action and the plot. Um, is it sort of that surprises you? Is it the ending or is it a character typically, or is it a technological you know, trope? That oh, any of the, any of the above, really. Um, one of the things you need to know about um, how s short stories are evaluated, and I think probably novels too, but I haven't done that. Um, you stop reading when you know it's not going to work for you. So you so there's a lot of stories that I don't get to the end on, uh, and that was something I had to learn to do because I was one of those people who had to finish everything, and reading slush will break you of that. Uh, so you know. If it, several editors I've spoken to have said the first sentence has to hook you and the second sentence has to keep you and the third sentence has to keep you <laughs> and it goes all the way through to the end. And yeah, you, you'll allow different things here and there. I know that there's something special when, I've, when I read a story and I, and I get to the end and I didn't stop. Um, because you know, usually there's a little thing here or there that throws you out of the story. Um, it's like, oh, I need them to fix that, or, or really, did you really want to do that? Or maybe, you know, so, so you can't turn the editor off sometimes. So if I can get all the way through to the end of a story and they, you know, um, I know that it's, it's structurally solid, 
Um, there's probably minor things to, to, to uh, change on it. And uh, they've managed to surprise me. More, that, that's going to be one of the ones that gets uh, taken uh, and, and, uh, or offered a contract. Right. They have, they have to agree to the terms first, but nobody's ever come back and said, nah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So um, follow up on that. How big is a typical slush pile? How many submissions do you typically get per, um, per release? Um, well, we're open, our submissions are open all the time and we average around 1100 stories a month. Uh, and some months we might only accept two and then other months we might take 15 or 20. Uh, it really, since we're a magazine and we're a monthly magazine, uh, I'm not worried about stocking up too much inventory. I'm really picky anyway. So I don't get too far ahead of myself. I'd say that the most we ever um, get is maybe three months out in inventory, which is the average from what I'm talking from, what I hear from other editors of what they, they like to be. Uh, but we're often at the two month or one month. Wow. Well, I'm sure, I hope you have um, some staff to help you out with that because that's kind of a lot of submissions to deal with. Um, yes, we, you know, I, I'm, first reading a very significant percentage of that and anything they think is good enough, they, they pass up to me and I'll read all of those as well. Um, and I have to train them all too. So the first month that they're working for me, I read everything they do. Um, so it, it's, it's a, a handy process. And I think it's, it's, it's really good for people who, who want to be writers or, or, or editors to go through uh, that, that sort of volunteer as a slush reader uh, project. Right. So I'm sure with the amount of submissions that you get, you have a pretty diverse uh, submission group or, or even readership. Um, mm -hmm. I think what we've seen in science fiction, especially in the last maybe 10 to 15 years, is a lot more diversity with authors. Um, there's been Chinese fiction that has come to the forefront. Uh, I won't butcher his name, uh, but I think it, but he won the Hugo in 2015, I think, uh, for the three-body problem. Sishin Lu, yeah. Thank you. And then um, we had N.K. Jemison, who's just won the past three for her series. I've um, published both of them. <laughs> I was about to say. I was about to say, um, Eric did some research and found out that you actually published those stories, which is, you know. Well, you not the ones that won. <laughs> those were novels. <laughs> but I've worked with the authors previously. That's amazing. So no, it's, it's wonderful when, when, when you see one of your authors go off. And even if it's not for one of the stories you worked with, it's great seeing them succeed. I'm sure. I'm sure. But I wanted to ask you, um, how, do you how do you create or develop a more diverse author base? Um, well, I think a lot of it is, is being quite vocal of the fact that you want them. Um, one of the... I've been on sort of a, a crusade for the last... You know, seven or eight years to make Clark's World much more of an international publication. I mean, we are uh, an online magazine. We're on the internet, which means that anyone in the world can read it. So we want writers to be represented, you know, from around the world, uh, you know, just like our readers. Uh, so I've made a lot of efforts over the years to to make sure that they realize they're welcome, and it didn't it really didn't occur to me 
to do that when I first started because I wasn't aware of the fact that most foreign authors or, uh, or underrepresented authors didn't feel welcome in the field. I was coming at it fr from, uh, oh, well, yeah, anybody who can email a submission can come. But they didn't think that meant they could. Uh, so announcing on, on Twitter, hey, you know, we really like to see some more submissions from this region of the world because we haven't. Or does anybody know an author in, in that area that uh, we can talk to and find out what the market in uh, Saudi Arabia is like? Uh, and, and so I've been doing this on and off for, for a few years. And, um, you know, we, we started publishing Chinese science fiction, uh, working with Ken Liu over, I think, over eight years ago now. Uh, and that led to a partnership with a company in China who pays for the translation, which is very, you know, translation's not cheap. So that helps us get uh, uh, stories, more of a quantity in. And one of the things we discovered that was that by holding this door open, we sort of established ourselves as putting our money where our mouth is. Uh, and that is a major item. So once we started publishing translations, the number of trans, despite the fact that it was almost all Chinese translations, the number of translations we were getting from other countries or just English language submissions from other countries started to go up. Um, uh, so there, uh, one of the, the problems, I guess, uh, internationally speaking, is that the U.S. is sort of a pedestal market. Um, all the authors, all the major authors that are translated into their language um, are sort of the, the pantheon of great science fiction writers. And to be in that community, to be welcome as part of that community um, is, is important uh, and, and very much respected. So we, we've uh, uh, made a lot of friends in different parts of the world through our, our efforts. And I'm really happy that we're helping change that landscape a little and, and broaden the science fiction world a little bit. Is that as simple as putting out a call on Twitter or other social medias, or are you, you know, having people on the ground there looking for talent, looking for people who are writing, you know, the stuff that you would publish? It's a combination of a lot of things, but being public about it is, is the first step. Um, and then, you know, I, I'm in touch with editors at magazines in different countries. I pay attention to the different awards that are given in different regions of the world. Um, so I'm, I'm watching what's going on and, and putting out feelers like, say, um, like when we get an author, um, when, the, when we get a first author from, from uh, a country, I'll tell them, listen, are there any other people in your area that uh, we should be, we should know about, like people who should be submitting work to us. Um, and can you let them know we exist? And we'd love to see it. You know, so there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff. We don't create a, a shortcut for anybody. You could be a New York Times bestseller or you could be a first time author from some small country in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean somewhere. Um, and, uh, you all get the same shot. Um, so there, you know, it's all open submissions. We don't solicit stories. Um, we're very 
passionate about making sure that everybody has a chance. And I think soliciting stories sort of cuts people out. Gotcha. So speaking from a larger perspective uh, for science fiction literature mm-hmm. in general, um, has the has its roots or I guess has its place in uh, literature uh, overall changed at all in the past 15 years? Do you think it's become more of the mainstream? Has it become more diverse? You know, what are, what are your thoughts on the past 15 or so years since you've been um, with Clark's role? Um, I would say that when we first started science fiction was, was still very much uh, sort of the a ghetto liter, uh, literature to, in, in the literary community. That it's like, yeah, it's somebody who wrote it, you know, a serious author who wrote a science fiction story would insist that it wasn't science fiction. They'd use our tropes and pretend it was, wasn't. And that, you know, that, that's fine. You know, whatever it takes to get people, science fiction is a marketing term, you know, it, it, but whatever it takes. But the, there wasn't a lot of respect from, even within English departments at universities. Um, the, now I graduated longer than 15 years ago, but the university I graduated from still doesn't have a science fiction class. Um, and I've been watching inc- uh, incoming links and talking with, with professors. And there's a convention I go to in Florida um, called ICFA, which is really an academic conference. It's the International Conference for the Fantastic and the Arts. So there's a lot of college professors and uh, a lot of science fiction people that go to the same thing. And it's like a collision of my two worlds. I used to work in academia. So uh, it, it was a, a very interesting thing to see. And over the years I've been going, watching uh, uh, how that community has engaged and how it's grown, I think is a really positive thing. And several years ago, there was, um, I was asked to be a, a keynote speaker at um, uh, something called Wright Fest in Houston. And this was the first time that I had gone to any event where I felt like the literary and science fiction people were side by side, no wall between us and talking. Um, And I thought it was a fascinating thing. It was, you know, the, uh, I believe the editor of McSweeney's was the other keynote speaker and we were comparing notes and like he knew, knew what we did. I knew what he did. And, you know, it was kind of, kind of nice then. And so I, I get the feeling that the, those walls between the literary community and the science fiction community are, are cracking. Um, and there's some places where we can just sneak through, uh, but they're still there. Um, and, and given enough time, I think they'll go away completely. Hey, Will here. If you've made it this far, we thank you. There's not much left, we promise. If you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, SoundCloud, Twitter, and Instagram at lit to lens we want to continue to grow the LTLian community. And well, you know, if you didn't like any specific topics uh, sprouted from the conversations today, just remember uh, those were all Eric's ideas and all the good ones came from, well, yours truly. And now back to the show. Yeah. So where do you, where do you go from there? You know, are there topics that are more quote unquote mainstream that you can, you know, encourage writers to submit or, you know, we keep talking about diversity here, um, or even the way things are published. What comes next? Uh, you sort of dropped out a bit there. Um, I caught the, I missed the last half of the sentence. 
Sure. So where does science fiction go from there? We're, we're talking about the genre becoming more mainstream. Um, what happens when that happens? Is well, it- I, I think the genre it's, is not becoming more mainstream. Mainstream is becoming more accepting of the genre. Um, so I don't think we're doing anything special. It's, it's some of those prejudices against science fiction. And I know where some of them came from. I mean, you, you have people who are into seriously well-written, you know, very, very hardcore um, uh, in, in the literary community. They want it, they want the, the story a certain way. And a lot of them, their only experience with science fiction was reading pulp. Um, and some of that stuff is not well-written. I mean, it, you know, it would not get published today. Um, and, you know, these are classics in, in the genre. They're great stories, but they just weren't written the way that, you know, they would accept. And one of the things that happened at that conference that I remember um, was uh, they had a, they, they had a, a, a zine thing that, you know, everybody who had a magazine was asked to set up a table and I brought some issues of the magazine. And I remember there was one woman who picked up uh, one of the issues and she's like, I've never read any science fiction. And then five minutes later, <laughs> she, she goes, well, I guess I'm going to have to buy this one because <laughs> she got hooked on one of the stories. And, you know, it was at the end, apparently the, the organizers told me that she mentioned that she had never read science fiction and, and uh, sort of had her eyes opened um, that the stories like that there was a, a preconception that the, the stories wouldn't be as good. So I think as more and more people read it, as more and more English departments offer these courses, as some of the faculty turn over, you're going to see all of these changes. Um, and uh, I, I, my only worry is that at this point we might, we might join the popular literature group um, <laughs> and they'll, they'll find a new reason to ignore us. But I think most of the people who are working within the universities that are doing work with science fiction and encouraging, you know, the classes, the writing, and even um, uh, journals um, are here to stay. I, I, I don't think they're, they're going to abandon us. That's good to hear. So are there a few stories that you, you've published in your magazine that you would maybe advise some listeners to go and read? Um, to get an idea of your magazine or what you guys are, are trying to push. Or maybe these are stories that you're proud of in some way yeah. or that have had a profound effect on maybe many of your readers or yourself. Okay. Well, let's see. Um, so there's a, a number that have been favorites by, by our readers over the years. We have 13 years of stories that are all available on the website. So um, I'll, I'll rattle off a few. Um, when We Were Starless by Simone Heller. Um, a Series of Stakes by Vina Jimin Prasad, uh, Secret Life of Bots by Susan Palmer, uh, Cat Pictures Please by Naomi Kritzer, uh, Today I Am Paul by Martin L. Shoemaker, Immersion by Aliette de Bodard, The Cartographer Wasps and the Anarchist Bees by E. Lily Yu, and probably of special interest to your group, uh, uh, your listeners, The Things by Peter Watts, which is a retelling of the movie The Thing uh, from the monster's perspective, which is utterly brilliant. I mean, it, it's probably the most read story we've ever published. 
Awesome. Now we, we have quite the reading list to go dig into. Yeah. So speaking of, I can send you links for all of those later. <laughs> please do. Yeah. So speaking of adaptations, that's, that's sort of our, our gig here on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, for you, why do you think it is that science fiction is, is such a popular genre for adapting? <laughs> uh, honestly, I don't think it's a stroke of brilliant zombie heart of Hollywood. They follow the money. Um, and, and some of them, you know, some of them did well and, and, you know, want more, 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 more. So, you know, and, and some of that you can see, uh, you know, certain authors become very popular, like Philip K. Dick, he, he, you know, you know, they, they want like how many of his stories are optioned now? Um, uh, you know, because one of them did really well, uh, they want another one and another and another. So I think that's generally what's happened. Uh, with this, uh, I don't. I think Hollywood is just uh, kind of mercenary in that regard. Um, there are people working on these movies that love science fiction. Uh, that you know, they're they're very passionate about it, and they make the they make the best of them. You know, they, there's um, and then there's the ones that just don't get it, and you know it. <laughs> yeah. So let's say you were more romantic about this. What? what why, why would they adapt these? Why? Uh, because they're good stories. Um, you know, they, you know they, all the reasons that some people read science fiction are present in the, in the movies. They, 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 they love the characters, the, the world, the escape. And science fiction makes great escapes. So does fantasy. Uh, and, you know, I think a lot of people, when they go to the movies, that's one of the things they're looking for. So I, I think that, you know, that's why they wanted more. You know, it's, it's all of those things uh, uh, combined. So when you go see an adaptation in theaters or maybe now just on Netflix or something, um, what are some key things that you look for that makes, in your opinion, a good adaptation? I, I, I really go into an adaptation apprehensive. Uh, because I'm worried they're going to butcher the work, uh, as I have seen done way, way, way too many times. Um, uh, but I think when it's clear that the, everybody involved in the film has respect for the original work, um, one of the things I'll watch is, you know, was the author involved in any way, and what do they think? Um, uh, you know, if they came out of it with a good experience, yeah, it can still be a bad movie, but... <laughs> But by and large, the, the, uh, um, the, the best filmmakers know when to deviate from the story because they need to, to make it work in that medium. And I, I, it's, it's very similar to working in translation. Sometimes you have to deviate from what the author originally said because it doesn't translate well. Um, same thing goes for making a movie. You need to sometimes drift from what the story says to make it a good movie. And a lot of these are, are built off of short stories and you can't make a hour and 45, two hour uh, uh, movie out of, out of a 15 page story. You have to expand on it. So they need to do that in a way that makes sense to me as, as a fan of, of that work. So you go into it you know, a little worried for the quality. Is mm-hmm. that one too many times of getting burned? Oh, it's majority of time getting burned. There, there's, <laughs> I, it's, it's, 
it's very uh, upsetting sometimes when I hear that something's being <laughs> adapted, particularly if I loved it. Um, but, uh, you know, sometimes they can pull it off. Can you name some of the burns that you've experienced? <laughs> oh, oh, my, the, the one that's right at the top of my list. Um, what was it? I, I'm trying to remember the name of the movie. Um, the one that was based on uh, um, Philip K. Dick's story that was set on Mars with Arnold Schwarzenegger. The worst. I'm trying to think of. We can remember for Total Recall. Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. So basically, all they did was took the two words, total recall, from the story, and that's it. Because <laughs> if you read the original story, it's nothing like that. I mean, it's the total recall concept is there, but the plot of the story goes way off. And it's, it's really, it was a movie that, that sort of like, they just, they wanted a science fiction theme to slap on an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, and they happened to get that story. And it's really sad that they did. Yeah. So do you know ahead of time, say you've read the work, do you know if it's going to work or not at, when you go into it? Or I guess, you know, taken from a different perspective, is there something about a work that just makes it impossible in your mind to adapt? Not impossible, but, but like a... Well, it makes it a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, think, I think it's become easier as the effects have gotten better, but um, I, I think that sometimes they rely a little too much on that. Uh, so it's a matter of, of uh, sometimes it's the casting. Uh, you know, you're, you're looking at, okay, do I believe this person is, is, uh, is that character? Like you take um, The Expanse, for example. There's a, there's a wonderful adaptation. Uh, you know, it's, it's a TV series, but uh, it's, it's done. Uh, I, I find all the characters, yeah, there's some differences, but I found them acceptable. Uh, they, they, they made sense for what they, they needed to do. And, uh, you know, there's, sometimes it's, it's just a matter of, okay, that's a really short story. How are they going to make that long? Uh, how, what can they do to expand on that? It was really good as it was. The author never made it a novel, so they didn't. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's, it's a lot, a lot of it falls around those kind of, kind of lines where, where I just have a hard time believing that it could be done adequately. Um, or you know, sometimes it might just be the people who are involved in it, their track record. It's like, oh God, not him again. Um, <laughs> so we talked about some burns. What are some, what are some booms? What are some things you saw and you're like, that, that you really did it? Well, I, I, I think the easy answer, I think, is Blade Runner. I think they did pretty, pretty good with that. Again, deviates somewhat. Um, but the, the one that I think that, that a lot of people forget about is, is Lathe of Heaven, um, the PBS version that was done in, in the 80s. I thought that was very well done. Um, a movie I went in with extremely low expectations and was like completely surprised was Edge of Tomorrow. Um, Tom Cruise movie. I instantly thought, oh no, <laughs> here we go. Um, but that actually surprised, that one fell above my expectations. Um, let's see. Yeah, I, I think the, the, those are a, a, a good three with, with the addition of the expanse in there as well, uh, of things that have, that have gone, you know, 
made me happy. <laughs> I, en I enjoyed the experience. You brought um, up Tom Cruise. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you saw the news yesterday. He's talking with Elon Musk to shoot a movie in space. I heard something about that, but I have no idea what it was supposed to be about. <laughs> no, does, does, do any, any alarms go off in your head when you hear that? Or no? Well, I'm just, I, I'm surprised that the alarms weren't going off at NASA. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair enough. That's yeah. fair enough. So uh, from the stories that you've read, uh, or maybe even published in your, in your magazine, are, you know, what is something that you would love to see adapted? Ooh. You know, I keep getting asked that by, by every now and then a director will email me, are there stories that I should be reading? Um, uh, it's, you know, and, and, and trying to think about it, I, I never really have a quick answer for that one. Um, so I, I think part of it is the, this reluctance to, to say, yeah, go play with this um, because I'm, I'm so apprehensive about, uh, about them. Uh, so I always have a hard time putting out there, hey, you should, you should take this and destroy it. <laughs> so with that, with that follow-up, I mean, um, I think a lot of it is tied to like the, the author's name. You know, mm -hmm. a, lot, a lot of times you see, you know, the Harry Potter uh, books were so popular, they had to make movies, right? And the Twilight, same thing. Um, are there any authors now that maybe it's like, well, you know, it would make sense for them to kind of like grapple onto this series or this author because it has such a big following uh, that they would make it into, into a, you know, a movie or even a series. Are there any authors now or books that you think, oh, that kind of makes sense? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that John Scalzi has had some stuff optioned. It's just I don't think any of it's come out or, or gone, gone farther. I, I think he, he tends to, to sell rather well. So, he, you know, he's a, a larger name in the field. Um, let's see. Who else? There's a number of, you know, you can go back through the whole history of the genre even, and, uh, you know, there's various classic works. I mean, we've seen a number of, of things from, you know, Arthur C. Clarke Dunn and, and, and uh, um, uh, some of the other of, of his generation, but there's still tons of work um, out there that could be uh, lifted for, for these things. Uh, the, um, yeah, I think some, some of the things that I would like to see are kind of, kind of weird and I know wouldn't get made, <laughs> you know, there's, there's, uh, I'm a, a fan of, of, uh, uh, Jim Morrow. He, he does, um, satire in his work. So he, he's got a, a book that I read back in college called Only Begotten Daughter, which is about the daughter of God. Um, uh, it, and it goes, it, it's, it's really, um, it would probably offend a lot of people. Um, so I don't think it'll ever get made, but I always thought it was a fascinating story and one that would be very easy to, to, to pour it over. There's, um, uh, I'm looking over at my shelf trying to, trying to see if there was, there was uh, something in particular that I'd like. Um, uh, but let's see. I know, um, one of my favorite short story authors is Ken Liu, and I know a number of his his stories have been 
uh, optioned and uh, some of them I believe are going into production. Uh, so I'm looking forward to those sort of. Um, uh, <laughs> it's whether or not that they're, they're uh, uh, since since some of them are rather personal. I, every now and then I get asked to sign a release form from an author because the work's been optioned and I need to sign a document that says that I have absolutely no claim to it. Um, so I know a few that I can't talk about. Um, but there's a, a little name dropper, a little hint. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like the only one, like I could mention Ken cause there was an announcement of uh, like it, there's public information about that, but there's other works that I can't say a word about um, uh, for fear of, of uh, causing them problems. Cause I don't think it's supposed to be said. Uh, and, and these things, when they're optioned, most, you know, most of them never, um, you know, they, they, they have the option, they don't use it. Right. Let's see. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think one of the things I, I would like to see more is, 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 uh, is, is more short work. Like, I really love that, that we've got some of these uh, um, uh, series that are going on. Uh, uh, that are more anthology type series, uh, so you'll you'll get a lot of, of of interesting shorter pieces that might you know a story that might be twenty minutes thirty minutes, um, and you can do a lot with those. Um, so I think I'd probably lean more towards towards that sort of thing rather than recommending uh, novels. Um, let's see. Yeah, and the other downside is that I don't have time to read as many novels. So I'm trying to think of of, uh, of ones that I have read, which are largely people that I've I've worked with in short form. So um, Yoon Ha Lee would be another interesting author to see uh, some of her, uh, sorry, some of his work um, uh, brought over. Cool. Well, that's well, that's. We've gotten a lot of name drops today, so mm -hmm. that's good for our listeners to kind of dig into those and kind of see what else that they've worked on. So I have to ask you, mm -hmm. uh, Dune is coming out at the end of the year, and that's obviously one of the biggest uh, biggest science fiction novels that's ever been written, most popular, and they did a, an adaptation, I think it was in the late 80s, that was widely criticized, and now this one is coming out again. It's been about, you know, 20 plus years, and... Denis Villeneuve, um, the director, has had a recent success with Blade Runner 2049 and Arrival. Um, are you still apprehensive to this one? Are you a little optimistic? Where do you where do you sit here? Well, he gets points for Arrival. Um, yeah, that, there was one that was really well done. Um, but Dune is a tricky book, uh, and, and that's what a lot of people have stumbled over in the past. Uh, I will see it, but my expectations won't be high. Um, it, it's one of those those projects that has been dubbed unfilmable a few times. But I, I think it, I think it'll be uh, given given who it is that's working on it. That's the only real reason that I'm I'm willing to see it at all. Well, knock on wood, it's coming yeah. out in the year. Well, <laughs> I'll be able to, to go to the movie theater and see it. Um, so Neil, where can people follow you? How can they support the magazine? Okay, well, um, they can find the magazine at clerksworldmagazine.com. 
Um, I'm on Twitter as at Clark's World, and I have a blog at uh, Neil-Clark with an E on the end. Um, it's N-E-I-L, too. <laughs> it's no matter which side of my name, people have spelling issues. Um, so it's uh, neilclark.com. Uh, and we are also, uh, uh, like I said, all our stories are available as podcasts as, as well. So anywhere you can listen to podcasts, you can pretty much search for us and probably subscribe to us there. Uh, if you prefer text, you can read online or subscribe at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, we're everywhere. Um, and if we're not there, let us know and we'll try and figure out how to get there. Uh, <laughs> Spell Neil's name right. Yes. Yeah, it's, 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 you know, fortunately Google will, will pick up on the spelling error if you, if you drop the E out of Clark and Clark's world, but not on my name. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. Um, you know, to our listeners, please go check this stuff out. It's, it is really great. And we want to thank you, Neil, for joining us uh, here tonight uh, for this conversation. It was really, really insightful and we appreciate you doing this. Anytime. Thanks a lot. That's it. Thanks for listening to our interview with Neil Clark. But for more information about upcoming episodes of the Lit to Lens podcast, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Lit to Lens. And if you'd like to follow the podcast itself, find us on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Thanks for coming along on this journey with us. Your support helps small creators like us get noticed. And thanks to and shout out uh, Shia LaBeouf. You don't support us directly, but it's your indirect support that means the world anyway. Come on the pod, Shia. Support the pod. Your support helps small creators like us get noticed.